stealing in as relapse hums above the den. It's Hello and welcome to episode 387 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm Carlos Welch. And from Owings Mills, Maryland, I am Andrew Brokus. We are going to be joined shortly by Kevin Rabichow, who uh, is in Vancouver, maybe somewhere in Canada. Um, anyway, Kevin is a professional poker player and coach, uh, has played, I think for a long time, was with a heads up cash specialist. And we talked to him a fair bit about transitioning into tournaments, which are kind of his focus now. And uh, in particular, he has a course which uh, I think by, will be available by the time this airs, uh, maybe is already available even as we're recording this, on Run at Once, which is called The Game Plan and is kind of as much about like studying poker. Um, and again, this is something we'll talk to him about in the interview, so I don't want to undersell it, but you know, he, he's someone who has really thought systematically about how to how to study poker and like what's what's most worth paying attention to and how can you translate your work into actionable things at at the table do you feel like that's describing reasonably well what he what he talked about yeah he talked about it you know from the sense of learning it and also from you know teaching it as like he's not a traditional teacher but you'll hear us discuss that he has done some coaching outside of poker that kind of like you know informed his ability to teach in a systematic way so whether you're learning poker or teaching it he's he does a good job of breaking it down into um uh different concepts that are easier to understand yeah, you know, we've had a lot of people who have come like out of the chess world into poker, or we've had the you know, bridge players, backgammon players, Magic the Gathering players, baseball players who have gone into poker. Kevin, I think, is our first ultimate frisbee player who has uh, <laughs> come into the into the poker world. I imagine there's several poker players who play ultimate frisbee. Seems like that will have like some overlap there, um, but. Um, yeah, as far as someone who's doing it professionally or, or at least did it professionally at some point, um, he is um, probably going to be unique in that. In that yeah, I, I don't know if he was he was he's literally like getting paid to do it, but he is still like coaching a an ultimate Frisbee team. Yeah, yeah. At, at least serious, if not professional, like yeah. more serious than like the average poker player. Just, you know, they probably get together. I, I know there's a group of poker players that get together and like play um soccer mm -hmm. at the world series every year so there's probably a group that does like ultimate frisbee like that frisbee like that but not as serious as kevin yeah exactly so i i think that's a, both a, a very fun interview and is a, a lot of strategy content we talk about how to work with solvers and again really how to like get the most out of doing that so not not just the mechanics of you know which buttons do you click or something like that but how do you really do meaningful work and make the most of the time that you put into your study whether it's with a solver or with anything else yes and according to his LinkedIn, I think he's from Ontario. Okay. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of strategy in our conversation with Kevin. So we're not going to do a separate strategy segment now. Uh, I do want to make sure that we uh, you know, remind you or <laughs> let you know about Thinking Poker Daily, which is where you can get lots of strategy from the two of us. You get a 10 to 15 minute strategy segment every day of the week from the two of us. If you sign up at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. And I guess I just want to emphasize here how fun these are. Like you and I, Carlos, we just recorded a bunch of these before we recorded this. And I mean, I think the the yeah, I feel very good about the quality of the strategy content that's in there. But we also just have a ton of fun recording these things. Um, I think if if you if you give this a chance, I think you're going to really enjoy listening to it. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, 
it's easy to give it a chance. You can um, sign up for as little as $5. And um, it's not a long-term commitment. You can just listen for one month for $5 and be done with it. And just as a teaser, we recorded an episode today about the meaning of poker life. So if that's something that you would be interested interested in hearing Andrew and I um, discuss, uh, I highly recommend that. If I say so myself, as a listener, I would be interested <laughs> in hearing Andrew's take on that. So yeah, definitely check that out. Uh, you can also get other stuff from us at nitcast.com, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com. Uh, we've got some older uh, stuff like premium podcasts that we or I have done with uh, Nate, and then also some strategy videos, some more recent things that Carlos and I have done together. Um, anything else that you want to plug, Carlos, before we bring Kevin in? I will say you can check out other products of mine. Um with um alex fitzgerald at pokerheadrush.com sign up for the newsletter there and i'm sure we'll probably send you an email about a discount coming up pretty soon um so <laughs> i will say this though you know if i you know don't mind pat myself on the back every now and then um this is the first time we recorded since i won my circuit ring oh that's right yeah congratulations Thank you. Thank you. So I won a circuit ring and online tournament for 16K. And then the next day I got fifth in a bracelet event. Um, this was a 1K six max for 20K. So it's been a pretty good September for me. So if you'd like to learn more about how I'm getting deep in these um, WSOP events, um, you can check out pokerheadrush.com, uh, sign up for Alex's newsletter and um, get a discount on how to win an online bracelet. I did it last year and I definitely did it again this year. <laughs> yeah, very cool. I'm, I'm sorry I made you pat your own back on that. That was poor, <laughs> poor uh, co-hosting on my part. I don't mind it. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening and please enjoy our interview with Kevin Revichow. Kevin Rabichow, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, you know, I, I know you're kind of uh, on the radar right now because you've got this this new course at uh, Run It Once, which we'll talk about in a second. But, you know, let, let's catch up first on just kind of who you are uh, in in the poker world. You know, how did you get, get started in poker and get better at poker and that kind of thing? Yeah, of course. Uh, so I've been playing for about 15 years. Uh, most of that professionally, although the first four years were in college. Um, so I guess I got started kind of in the in the era where the two plus two forums were really big. I, I attribute a lot of my like early progress to the two plus two forums. And I uh, was playing mostly heads up cash online um, once I started taking the game seriously and had moved my way pretty high up the stakes i want to say like pretty secure playing mid stakes online in like 2010 and then uh leading into black friday i lost a big chunk of my bankroll uh right around the time i was graduating university in, in chicago and uh and i moved up to toronto to continue pursuing professional poker do you mean lost your bankroll like uh like lost it playing to other people or lost it to full tilt? No, no, to the whole like full tilt and poker right, stars. Okay. It it was a combination of things for sure. The way the way I've told that story in the past is basically like I had three quarters of my bankroll seized and then lost the rest of it at the World Series that summer. <laughs> um <laughs> so so that and that's like pretty accurate, although of course like poker stars um paid out pretty quickly and mm -hmm. i believe a lot of that money was was part of what i used to fund my world series that year it was that was like perhaps the the most financially irresponsible decision that i made in my career was like still playing a full world series schedule when i just had most of my bankroll like seized by the government essentially mm -hmm. um and you got that back eventually the, the full tilt money yeah uh when was that 2014 yeah it was, it was two, I, two plus years yeah. after black friday yeah um and I think there was a, a a rebate from Absolute Poker as well. Not long after that, this, these were literally like like ninety five percent of my bankroll was spread between those sites. Yeah. Um, 
I played a little bit on other sites, but I just didn't didn't have nearly as much there. So yeah, but but by that time I had kind of like I spent probably the first two years that I lived in Toronto just playing heads up cash online like nonstop. I got a backing deal so that I could start right away. And then I got out of that backing deal within the first year. Um, and then just started like selling action to friends and moved my way up to high stakes by the probably before full tilt refunded our bankrolls. Um, I don't remember that having like a huge impact at that at that point. I'm curious, you know, I, I know that it used to be, that, I mean, there used to be a pretty robust high stakes heads up um, market, mm -hmm. you know, where you, where you could just sort of play uh, at whatever stakes you wanted and, and find people to play against you. Um, my my guess, and it's not something that I've paid close attention to, is that, I mean, I would expect that to get more efficient over time where like there's only so many people who are looking to play, you know, mm -hmm. high stakes heads up games. And like, for the most part, you know, which one of you is better than which one of you. And there's not a lot of reason for you to like mm -hmm. butt heads with each other. Like what what is the, what does the market or the economy look like there? Yeah, it's it's not a format that I really play a lot of now. I I was uh, you know invited to play the Legend Showdown with one run at once poker was was operating worldwide uh, a couple of years ago. That was like a fun format for Heads Up No Limit to continue now. But but for the most part, what I understand, like some of my old students still play Heads Up uh, Cash, and I believe it's really uh, sparse, right? So it's it's the type of thing where uh, a, a concentration of talent at the top um are the only people who who sit any of the networks and like a lot of the networks just don't even offer the the format anymore mm -hmm. um or or like poker stars has uh long adopted the zoom format which which helped um alleviate some of the predatory natures of of the heads up format uh, but a lot of sites just don't they they just barely run the game and there's like a handful of players who care to sit and, and try to find a match um but a, a lot of the heads up action now is privately arranged, heavily promoted, you know, the the Doug Polk versus Daniel Negreanu type of matches, but but perhaps, you know, small on a smaller scale, a little more private. Um, those those are the majority of the the matches that I hear about. I was just going to say on, on the the Zoom thing, or my understanding, and you can correct me if, if this is wrong, but it might not be obvious to, to some people. Essentially, what's happening there is there's a pool of people who are saying, like, I'm willing to play 5, 10 heads up or whatever, I guess it's bigger than that. Yes. But, uh, you know, and then so you don't know any given hand could be against any person in that pool. So it's not yes. like you're just sitting down and then someone has to be willing to challenge Kevin Ravichel or else there's no match mm -hmm. that happens. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I actually thought it was a it was a great move at the time. Uh, I want to say it was 2015 or so that that Poker Stars rolled that out in the in the heads up format, anyways. And I thought it was really like it it seemed really smart because the the previous lobby system was kind of this like uh, waiting room where however many people who want to wait just wait, um, and then you're you know you're hoping to get lucky and and have a live one you know just have a live one hop in the seat um but when that happens like it's yours and you play and you play the only match that's happening on the whole network and like nothing else happens zoom was really action generating for a while there because anytime someone logged on like someone recreational logged on and wanted to play 10 20 no limit there's like 20 people whose attention that grabs and all of a sudden we've got a huge game going right mm -hmm. um, and that game might continue after they leave or it might encourage other people to jump in might encourage two or three other recreationals to jump in and all of a sudden there's like quite a good um economy but that that didn't really last I don't, I don't believe that runs any significant volume these days do you know what happened there like why why did that not prove to be a viable format or do you have a thoughts on that i guess i would say two things happened um one is that like the the volume of of recreational interest in that format declined over time as as the the sites offered more like action generating formats right so they um you know Heads up used to be fun, especially heads up sit and goes used to be fun for recreationals, I think, because they were looking for like a quick way to double their money or a quick way to try and like steal a big blind. You would you would get a ton of, of recreational, like way back, let's say playing 25, 50 heads up, you would get a ton of action where someone sits and they're only intending to play one hand because they really need $50. <laughs> and they're, they're literally just trying to win the first hand by whatever means necessary. And if they lose that hand, they're gone, right? Um, and if they win that hand, they're gone. <laughs> it's actually like it was it was pretty well-known strategy among heads up regulars that like if someone sits down and seems to be trying really hard to win the first hand like they they are <laughs> that's exactly what's <laughs> happening um so it, i think now you've got spin and goes right like prize pool type things you've got hyper turbo formats everywhere you've got you've got a lot of other options 
for that that aren't as expensive. Um, you've got a lot of ways to win a quick 50 bucks in on poker stars these days. Um, so I think that contributed to the lack of interest in heads up. Um, I think the other part is that the what you might call like second tier regulars or like third tier regulars who were trying to join in for the battle started to recognize their disadvantage in the format. Um, the heads up specialists, I think, performed quite well in comparison to, let's say, like the six max regulars or the, I don't know, PLO heads up players or something who would spot a game running and think, oh, I could I could jump in there. Maybe I could be profitable in this game. And like over time, they realize, oh, no, I'm, I'm not. So they just stop joining. I would guess there's also, I mean, this is kind of from my experience of more recreational players in like a live tournament setting, but I know that it's like very unpopular when when a table breaks, like people find that very disorienting. Yes. And so I think, you know, heads up, obviously like a Zoom format where you're just like playing a different player every time. I think for, you know, obviously for someone like yourself, who's very like solver studied, it's, I mean, it matters who you're playing against, but you're also like, you have a strong baseline where you're like, I know what I'm going to do here in the absence of some, some read on this player. And I think for more, someone who was actually trying to like play a full heads up match, as a more recreational player, they they're much more in a like play the player sort of mindset. So when they're just like matched up against some random person, then it's like some different person the next hand. I think that's like much more disorienting for them than it would be for you. Yeah, for sure. It was disorienting in general at first. Like getting getting used to playing Zoom was kind of strange. I'm sure I'm sure players like even in six max experience this. Um, you know, going from playing against the same five players to a, a pool of a hundred is very different um, and it makes you lazy and it and it could turn on that autopilot a lot more often and it, it just takes a lot more focused effort to to make unique decisions in in whatever hand it is you're playing and not just like turn off your brain and, and keep clicking because the game's moving so fast. That's kind of what it's designed to do, right? The game format is literally designed to like speed up play and have as many hands happen as quickly as possible so that more rate can be generated. So mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge for sure, even for the better specialists, I think. So the transition into playing MTTs for you, was that something you wanted to do anyway, or was that kind of driven by the high stakes heads up action drying up? Definitely the action drying up was was a contributing factor. I was I was kind of like halfway out the door on on poker in general because of the action starting to dry up and in combination with just kind of like my own, I don't know, maybe lack of interest in the format or like uh, things starting to feel repetitive. Um, I, I suppose it was probably burnout in, in retrospect. But tournaments uh were not really like uh, a plan of mine while i was playing heads up i kind of dabbled in like six max games online i dabbled in those app games when they started to grow uh, i played live a little more often than i used to i just wasn't really sure what i was going to do and and once i started seeing like the uh the scale and the excitement that was um happening in live tournament poker that really appealed to me and then when live tournament poker shut down uh for covid then like moving online really appealed to me to play online tournaments a lot. So it just kind of happened organically um, as I as I tried to find like my my new place in in poker. So you're big, I think, even relative to like other very successful poker players, you're big, it seems like, on kind of preparation and, and purposeful learning. When mm-hmm. you decided you wanted to focus on MTTs, how did you I mean, I assume you set out sort of like a, a game plan or a study plan for yourself of how to go about preparing for them. And I'm mm-hmm. curious what that looked like. Yeah, I did. It it didn't all come together at once. Um, I would say that like my my emphasis on on this type of preparation or or what you're calling purposeful learning, like that's that's come together um in more recent times as I've started to figure out like what it is that I'm good at. But the process for me when I first started getting into MTTs, like the first thing I did was I just bought like a fair bit of material that I thought would help get me up to speed quickly because my my plan came together quickly uh, to, to focus on MTTs. So I, I bought like the Raise Your Edge course. I think it was relatively new at the time that I was getting started. I bought like HRC and like other tools that are kind of ICM specific that I had no need for previously. Uh, and I just sort of dove into like studying that sort of material. I think what I realized pretty quickly was that the biggest differences um, were going to be in preflop play. And this was just where I was seeing like the majority of my mistakes happening. So I started to like map out for myself the preflop weaknesses that it that I wanted to focus on. So this is like, I guess, kind of my intentional approach was that I'm I was taking note, like as I played tournaments, as I kind of went in and failed <laughs> uh pretty frequently. 
I was taking note of like all the things that I knew I wasn't like happy with my performance at, right? So not like my results, but just my decision process was just so clearly wrong (laughs) Um, in a lot of preflop areas. So if I could like keep track of what it is that I need to learn preflop, then all I had to do was hop over to the course and like emphasize the preflop section. There's probably a good chunk of the course that I never even opened because it wasn't really an area that I felt was lacking in my game. You know, some stuff was going to translate quite naturally from heads up, like blind versus blind or or deep stack, you know, single raised pots or deep stack three bet pots. I, I just didn't really need to um, review that stuff in a tournament setting. But like shallow, pre-flop, you know, the, the stuff that was way different, I just hammered as much information as I could in, in those areas. So this is probably a good time to talk some about what, um, I guess, the development of the material that ultimately goes into this uh, course, which is called the game plan. Yeah, that's right. Um, so th- it it sounds like this is this is you developing the material that uh, I mean, or you know, sort of innovating for for yourself the material mm-hmm. that that ultimately goes into the course. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, for sure. So the the kind of like overall process that I go through in the course is is very much parallel to the process that I took when I was preparing for the Legend Showdown. Um, so that was a, a heads up like tournament. I guess, tournament format, cash format, hybrid. Uh, That happened on Run It Once Poker in August 2020, I believe. And as I was kind of just describing, I I didn't really play that much heads up in the years prior, like the couple of years prior to that. 2018, I wasn't playing so much poker. 2019, I was playing like all live tournaments. So I really wanted to be intentional about developing a a game plan. (laughs) It's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but uh, for for what it is that I was going to like prepare for leading into a, a big heads up match, knowing that I was going to be up against like a variety of players, some who were probably better than me at the time because they were still playing heads up all the time. Some of which I was going to be stronger than because they weren't specialists in the format. Uh, so I tried to come up with like a specific process for what needed to be improved and how I was going to improve it. And then just like write out the strategy on paper, I had these like very poorly formatted um, notepad documents that just outlined like what my preflop strategy was and what my flop strategy was on different board textures. And so what I started to realize was that I was I was building out like a very useful framework for for learning the game or or for getting better at the game. Uh, and and later on, as I was working with a lot of private students and and kind of feeding them that process, I realized like, oh, this this process could be built into templates. It could be packaged into a course. Like this is probably the most beneficial thing that I could provide on a training platform to a wider audience. Uh, because so many people who approached me for private coaching were basically just asking for exactly this. Um, and I don't, I don't need to walk them through, you know, the same thing every single time, right? So it's it's this very clear system of like evaluation, improvement, and game planning that I think a lot of even like very serious poker players don't bother to put down on paper. Can you say a little bit more about what each of those three things is? I mean, obviously I know like broad strokes, but mm-hmm. you know what, what it sounds like those are, those are pretty core steps. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So evaluation is, is hard um, as a, as an individual, I think. So uh, a lot of times like let's let's say I'm I'm doing a consultation call with a new student and I'm just asking them like what do you want to get better at what do you you know what are your goals what are you working on uh, a lot of people have an idea of what it is they need to get better at but they don't know like how important each thing is or they might have like 20 things and it's just unrealistic to work on all of them simultaneously so the evaluation section of the course tries to to quantify this in some way so it it's like a starts with a big survey that the user goes through and and checks off, you know, pre-flop, flop, turn, river, uh, mental game, live presence, like psychology, uh, theoretical knowledge, all of this kind of stuff. Um, you're you're rating yourself. You're forced to give your, yourself a rating relative to all the other factors, and they're labeled by importance. So they're labeled, you know, these are fundamental skills. These are these are intermediate skills. These are advanced skills. So what you come away with after going through that section is like a a roadmap that says here's like the most important things that you don't think you're very good at. Here's the here's the not so important things that you don't think you're very good at, um, and then you convert those into some kind of plan of attack. So that's evaluation moving its way into improvement, and 
an improvement is kind of <laughs> the 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 way that section of the course developed um started as me going through the mistakes that I see people using with like various tools to get better. You know, imagine something a program like PO Solver, which is very ubiquitous with with poker study. And I think a lot of people um just buy it because they think that's what they're supposed to do. Uh, but they don't really know how to like take advantage of it. They don't really know how it's going to help their game specifically. So I thought this was a big problem that I was seeing in my students. So I'd, I kind of just went through the process of explaining like here's what this tool is good at and and here's how I use it and here's how you can kind of make it effective for whatever the thing is that that you identified in the evaluation. I tried to do that with like all the major types of of study tools. Um poker content like uh preflop solvers, range viewers, um even poker tracker like like a regular database tool because that's that's something that I use a lot for um for self-evaluation as well. So I'm realizing I'm going on quite 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 a lot on the detail of of the format. Um, but just quickly, like the the last section that, that I mentioned, the game planning, like that that's just what I was talking about doing for for Legend Showdown. So that's just like taking all the things that I think I'm trying to accomplish at the table and like putting them in writing, putting them in some sort of format that says, okay, when I'm when I'm playing flops, this is my strategy. This is what it looks like. This is the shape of my strategy. Um, because I think that having visibility over that. It's it's a big step in the direction towards knowing like how to get better and tracking your your progress and also just like playing better in in practice like executing better. Yeah, I don't know that I ever. I, I certainly was not doing it to to that degree, but I, I did used to enjoy playing heads up like pre pre Black Friday and uh, heads up tournaments in particular because people couldn't just quit you, right? Like you didn't have quite yes. the same problem of the just like yeah. once it becomes apparent that you're better than someone. Uh, then, <laughs> then they're just, I mean, I actually I used to factor that into my decisions to some degree of like if oh, yeah. like if you make this this really thin value bet on the river, they might just quit if they call. <laughs> and like, is the EV of that oh, you're making this one call or whatever? Like even if it's slightly plus EV, but it's going to get you quit, is it worth doing? Yeah. But um, I mean, part of what I enjoyed about the heads up tournaments, and I mean, I, I would imagine this is getting less true as people become more like theoretically solid, was that like the way you might approach the match would be so different depending on, I mean, both how much of an edge you expected to have in the match in general, and then how the particular person played where like there were some matches where I was like, you know, just never raising or never three betting preflop because the person was was such a poor player that I just like didn't want to force large preflop pots because I thought I was like a huge mm -hmm. favorite. If the mm -hmm. bottom was small. And then there's other times when your head's up with, I don't know, someone whose name I recognize where I was like, oh, this person actually knows how to play heads up. Like now I want to do a lot of three betting and just like force the large preflop pots as much as I can. And of course there's room for like much more subtle things as well. But I did used to have like, you know, a, a notepad open while I was playing and just trying to, to jot down. And there's just not room to do that as much. And like, if you're playing a full ring tournament, you have nine people, even if you have a great read on the player in the big blind, mm -hmm. if you're under the gun, like there's still seven other people who can three bet you light if you're like opening too wide yeah i i mean i think i think honestly by having a notepad open and like even trying to formulate thoughts around what it is that you're doing is is like above average for how much effort people put in 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 like structuring their game plan with games being like more complex i think the the challenge in doing what i'm describing is like making sure that it's as simple as possible uh almost like you know i'm i'm sure that um for example a mental game coach would probably recommend to their students to make like their mantras as simple as possible, right? So like things that you say to yourself uh, for motivation, for for releasing tilt, whatever it is. If it's four sentences long and it and it, and it's very cerebral, it's not going to have much of an impact, right? Like uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't speak out two paragraphs to yourself to calm yourself down. You you need like two words. Um, so I think it's similar with with strategy in that like the more complex your strategy is, the less likely you are to remember it. And therefore, the less impactful it is to even have that strategy in the first place. Um, so what I try to do is, is strip away as much information as possible. That's just like I feel is a distraction um, and and set up like it's a template. It's it's not meant for like every user to copy it necessarily, but just a template for thinking, OK, if I wanted to to write out my strategy in as few words as possible, like what would I what's the what are the core components? What's the information that I really can't leave out? Um, and and everything else doesn't doesn't need to be written down. And this is something you're doing in advance of the game, or something that's kind of like evolving as you're playing. Um, I would I would say this is in advance of the game. Yes, I mean I I, I do 
like my my own game plan and i and i think that uh this will continue to be true like changes over time depending on i guess how confident i am about certain parts of the game uh so for example to have i guess a, a better way of visualizing what i'm talking about when i used to play heads up like full time let's let's say 2015 2016 or something um i only had one flopsy bet size so my my flopsy betting game plan was like let's say 75% pot. I, I forget if I'm using the right year, but this was true at some point, right? And that's just all I knew. So so what I did was I made a strategy that worked really well within those constraints. Like I, I had constrained my strategy to only 75% pot sizing on the flop. And I knew how to play that strategy really well. And I thought that it worked pretty well against my opponents. So I just stuck with it. Um, at some point, that was no longer true. Like at, at some point, I, probably through the use of solvers, I realized that wasn't even really that good theoretically. But also my opponents were not making the same mistakes that they used to make against that like broad strategy. So now I might be looking for three different sizes, uh, a 25% pot, a 75% pot, and a 150% pot. Um, but to, to still constrain it in a way that I can remember it, I'm only using one size per board texture. So I'm not trying to mix. I'm not. I'm not trying to branch out multiple trees based on um, one board. But I am still adding complexity that that feels achievable for me. So I think that's like a pretty uh, straightforward example of how uh, my game plan might change over time. But it's not necessarily something I'm doing like live, right? I'm I'm not doing it like at the table by any means. This is this is pregame preparation or, or off season, you might call it like preparation. Got it. So is this like a heads up specific concept or are you doing the same thing for, for like MTT play? Yeah. So the, I mean, the process worked best for me heads up. I would say, um, the course shows this process through the lens of heads up, no limit, but I have found it's able to be adapted to, to MTTs, at least for my personal study. It's, it's less specific, right? So the the amount of information that I can detail in the game plan becomes like uh, more sparse. It's it's broader in in its approach. Uh, but I do have like a similar structure in my own learning for tournament strategy. Um, the the way that I approach that in the course is mostly by like providing formats that worked for or templates, I should say, that worked for heads up no limit, and then offering adjustments for for the structure so offering like uh categorizations um let's say to group like multiple positions against the big blind together so that you only need to have like one game plan for playing against the big blind uh grouping multiple stack sizes together if you're a tournament player so you know not having not having a game plan that's ignoring stack size but also not having one for 10 and 12 and 15 and 20 and 25 big blinds deep right that's ridiculous um so there's there's some middle ground to be found there. I think what I've what I found is that in in heads up format, I was able to write down a lot. Uh, in tournament format, I'm I'm writing down less. I'm I'm more of a more of a field player when I play tournaments. Um, but that's okay as long as I've given some amount of preparation to the strategy. I I kind of understand the structure. Yeah, the tournaments were kind of what motivated the my question about the, doing it in real time because this is something that Carlos and I have talked about a lot, particularly with regard to like the WSOP main event or, or some other live tournaments where uh, one table can just vary so dramatically from another of you know what, who's on your immediate left or how many people are you know limping or just playing. It's like strategies that are so far off from I think like a lot of online tournaments that you play, especially like higher stakes ones. The tables don't vary so dramatically from from one to another. And you can just kind of say like, this is how I'm going to approach this tournament. But, uh, you know, especially something like the main event where you might be at that one table all day and not even have a lot of turnover in terms of who are the players. I do think there's room to do the same kind of thing that you're talking about, but to make it much more specific to the table of like, you know, okay, this is one where I'm going to be doing a lot of, you know, this guy is raising this other guy's limps. So I'm going to be three betting him a lot or just having something like very dialed into this specific uh, table and trying to, to check in uh, and we talk about when to do this as well, you know, when to update it or uh, on the breaks every two hours or every time someone wins or loses a big pot just trying to check in and, and be aware of like what the what the table dynamic looks like and how that should be influencing especially when you have a marginal decision of like okay i know that this is a hand that like could be a three bet or a call how am i going to make that decision 
I don't, I don't want to necessarily just go with my gut because my gut might be influenced by like, I just lost a big pot and now I want to win those chips back. So I want to have said in advance, like, I know that I'm mostly going to err on the side of like folding rather than calling if I have a close decision because this is a tough table or something like that. Yeah, it's interesting. The I think the types of uh, game planning that you're describing are like the are are uh, very much attached to like adjusting to environment or like adjusting to player style, um, which is like applicable to to the material that I put together. But I think it's like a it's like a reapplication of the material. So I, I think the like the focus of um, at least the way that I use my my like templates in the course is about writing out like a theoretical approach in a way that that makes sense to you that you can execute it better. So there is like a there's a short section that covers like how I how I approach adjustments and and writing out, you know, particular adjustments. Um but I would say that the the bulk of it is about how to like take very abstract concepts like theoretical game plans and trim them down to like a size that that you can bite off, right? Like a easier to memorize, easier to think about, easier to understand conceptually. And then I would start adding little adaptations like what you're talking about. So adding adaptations like how would my three bet range construction change if a if a you know a VIP was on my left and they haven't acted yet, or or if a VIP was on my right. So like table formation stuff, um, or how would I adjust if the whole table is on average too aggressive or the whole table is on average too passive. Those are really good things to have pre-prepared, but it's, I guess my emphasis is a little more on like, how does the theory change rather than um, what do I need to do against this opponent uh, specifically, if that makes sense. So this might be something like, you know, I, I know that at 30 big blinds, I'm going to be doing more polar three betting because I'm going to face more like four bets or shoves versus at like 50 big blinds. Uh, I, my, my three betting doesn't need to be as polar or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also just like, like a, a big part of it is I, I like that example because um, it's very common, I think, in tournaments with how many different situations get thrown at us to to take like a theoretical concept that maybe like a coach put in a video let's say pol like polar three betting at 30 big blinds and just kind of take it for granted like oh that's the way it is like that's the way the game works at 30 big blinds and what i'm encouraging is a, is a more like skeptical approach to solver outputs so thinking like okay well polar works because of this right like polar works because the expected response has a low percentage of flats and a high percentage of four bet shoves or polar works because you know, we we also have an all-in three-bet strategy and like maybe the middle of our range prefers to go all-in and deny equity to this hand class. So like understanding how we got to polar lets you decide if it's actually right for, for whatever game you're playing. If you're playing 30 big blinds deep, but everyone's loose passive and like nobody folds to three bets, then polar sounds horrible. That, <laughs> that doesn't seem like the right approach. It doesn't matter that you're 30 big blinds. That's just like ignoring what's in front of you, right? So, it, um, so I, I think that's a good example of where my my approach would be to like question the solver outputs and break break it down into like the the why and then decide after that like okay do i actually want this to be part of my game plan or or should i or what are the triggers that would make me uh change to a linear three betting strategy or a you know or or a no three bet strategy like you suggested you might do against some opponents I, I love the, the way you put it of being skeptical of of solver outputs and and I think this, like, because there, there's a very, like, fishy approach to solvers that is sort of like, uh, when I get uh, an output, or there's, like, solvers are just not appropriate for the game that I play in because they, they don't know what they're talking about or, or something like that. And so, like, <laughs> I think there's, like, there's a bad kind of skepticism there. But I think the right. Like, the, the right way to apply that is to recognize when you see a solver output that seems very counterintuitive to you or even bad, you know, you're like, that that seems awful. Why would I do that? But, like, yeah. then you should, like, why would I do that? That's that's not the end of the argument. That's the beginning. Like, you should look at, yes. well, why? why does the solver think you should do that the solver is not wrong given its assumptions so then you have to see like what are the or i mean it's not its assumptions exactly but you know you have to see like what what is driving that from the solver's perspective and then if you can as as you put it you know if, if you can identify okay the reason i have a, a more linear three betting range or sorry more polar three betting range is because i also have this linear shoving range then like that's something that you can work with or i mean i think often it does involve looking at at the opponent's response and saying like oh it thinks that you know these and these and these hands are going to call but actually like i don't expect those hands to call so then you know like if but you want to be able to justify why your answer looks different than the solvers does
Yeah, and I, because I think that my my process seems very theoretically oriented. A, lo- a lot of people ask me like, how much time do I put into study? Like, how much of my you know professional commitment is dedicated to study? And, and it usually surprises them that it's only about twenty percent of the time that I that I spend. Like, maybe even less, depending on like if I'm at World Series, it's like five percent of the time or something, because uh, I'm just so exhausted from playing. But the way that I approach using solvers, it, it takes some of the rigor out of the process because. If you go into that one preflop chart and figure out why it's polar, then like you don't need to keep looking at all these other polar preflop charts <laughs> right. anymore, right? Like you don't you don't need to repeat that process in all the different other scenarios where that same concept applies. Once you've extracted the concept, you're done. Like you can move on to the next thing. So I think that's like another really valuable thing in in tackling what what seems like so impossible to learn, you know, the theory of of all of tournament poker. And I certainly don't try to present anything close to that in in my in my course. But if you can extract like the important concepts behind these solutions, then you can just reapply and reapply and like combine situations together. And all of a sudden, the game just got a lot smaller, right? And it's a lot more achievable. I've kind of gotten the sense that there are some people, and I know you've been playing long enough that that you, know, you certainly would not fall into this category. But that there are some people for whom the like solver outputs come first in their poker learning where yes. like i think you know like for us it the solvers didn't even exist when when we were starting to play so it was like you learn mm-hmm. in a very heuristic way and then i think it, it was very natural for us to then use solvers to like test those heuristics or learn new heuristics versus like and i get the sense i, I don't think this would work for me even if i were starting now but I'm getting the sense that there are some people for whom this is a viable style of learning. Um, I mean, I, you can probably hear I'm still a little skeptical of it, but like <laughs> just just looking at a lot of solver outputs and and sort of, I mean, I don't think they're quite memorizing it, but I think they're building intuition. I mean, I guess even more so like drilling with a, um, you know, a training, uh, uh, like a DTO solver or DTO trainer sort yeah. of thing, um, yeah. just like drilling with those. But uh, how how viable do you think that is of of a study approach? Yeah, honestly, I think it's very viable. Um, I always try to recommend to students at, at least trying to flesh out a little bit the type of study method that that's most suitable for their like for what they're good at. Maybe their background in like if they come from other games, if they come from you know some previous career, something to help figure out like what style is going to suit this person. But I've I've worked with a lot of particularly younger players who you know maybe started the game within the last three or four years. And they only know solvers. Like that's that's it. Um, and for the most part, they're very good players. Uh, I I absolutely think that that's a viable. Like there's just yeah the the training tools you're talking about or the you know web solver type tools uh, have have just made ease of exposure to these solutions and 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 like the ease of the learning process. Well, yeah, the process is a <laughs> the process is a lot easier than it used to be. Um, and and solvers are the reason for that what they're losing is this like ability to think for yourself and this adaptability to situations but i don't know that that's costing those players more than they're gaining by just like being so strong technically mm-hmm. right so you're you're seeing now these like clashes of style both succeeding for different reasons and i think they don't really understand each other i f- i feel pretty fortunate to be in a in a spot where i think i understand both like the the strengths of both types of players um, you know, someone who's been in the game for for long enough to be able to figure everything out without a solver. And then those players who have only been in it for like three years and it's literally all they know. And they show up and they play completely different, but they can both be successful, uh, which I find quite interesting. What were the biggest disruptions for you from like when you first started working with solvers, things that were kind of mind-blowing for you, or at least where you were like, oh, this this heuristic that I've been working off of for a while is very incomplete or, or just wrong? Well, that's a really good question. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to think back to I'm sure this happened like forty or fifty different times. so so it's funny. I, I actually, perhaps the way that this hit me the most was when I started to realize that a lot of the players who I thought were terrible were doing a lot of things that were showing up in my outputs. It was very common, at least for me, in online heads up to sort of just have this idea that like you've got it all figured out and any anytime someone did something that was like non-standard or that you couldn't explain through words too easily you just assume that they were bad at the game and they didn't really know what they were doing so for example like i don't know someone who makes like a lot of small raises on the flop uh regardless of the flop texture and 
you know, I just saw that and I was like, oh, that doesn't make sense. Like you don't want to raise small on a, on a nine, seven, six, two tone board that doesn't, you know, that doesn't protect your, your equity. Like I'm, I'm looking at it through this narrow lens of like, oh, you can't, you can't raise small there because you're not pricing out draws or something, you know, whatever, whatever it was the way that I thought about it 10 years ago. And then later on, I, I start using solvers and I realize like, oh, if, if they raise small and I don't defend this, then, then they're redlining me. Like then they're, then they're crushing me. So I kind of, I think it was every time the solver showed me that new, like, if you don't do this, then they win are like all of the biggest insights that I've gotten out of solvers. Yeah. I mean, like my bet sizing has gotten better for sure. Uh, my frequency of raising just like general level of aggression has gotten better for sure. But I, th I, I think usually the most insightful stuff is recognizing like what has to be done to stop someone from running you over. Uh, Cause often it's very challenging. And um, that's where I think a lot of the best players are making like really big strides through solver use is, is being like more prepared for the super aggressive opponents, being more prepared for the ones who are just like winning every pot um, if you don't put up a fight. I really like that framing of like what has to be done or I mean, I guess I, I kind of like flipping it around and saying because people tend to worry so much about like, oh, is it exploitable if I do this? Is it exploitable if I do that? And I think it's very useful to say, I mean, maybe, but what is the exploit and are your opponents actually going to do that thing? Um, yeah. And also, you know, like I find that people are far more commonly asking whether a fold is exploitable more mm -hmm. so than whether a call is exploitable. Like I think yes. having, having a sense <laughs> of like, what actually is it that you're worried about or what would happen? Like, okay, if I'm not making this, the small flop raise, then how are my opponents profiting from that? And, I mean, personally, I tend to be more concerned with things. I guess I have a sense of like how, how intuitive is a certain response? So it's like, you know, for someone who, who, if like, if they weren't using a solver, if they were not theoretically informed, would they kind of just, just using sort of like whatever heuristics I would expect of like good, but not theoretically informed poker player to have, you know, what would, what strategy would they arrive at? And sometimes it's very natural and on certain boards they're facing for certain bet sizes, it's very natural. And other times it's like, if you don't do a lot of kind of unintuitive stuff, then my bluffs are going to be very profitable. And you know, being able to recognize mm -hmm. those, those kinds of spots, or even think about how to actively put your opponents in those sorts of spots, which I think like, you know, small C betting use, I think people are getting better at responding to it. But for a while that, I mean, it's a, often a good strategy in many situations anyway, but it was like mm -hmm. really printing for a while because it did require people to like, they were supposed to be check raising more often against them. They were supposed to be defending you know, much weaker mm -hmm. hands against them than they were used to. And, and people didn't know how to do that. And, and it was, I mean, not only inconsistent with their their previous intuition for responding to larger bets, but just like not intuitive in general. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I, I, I like that you flipped the framing there as well, because it's it's more of like an opportunist mindset to, yeah. to think, you know, oh, if they if they don't do this very difficult thing, then I get to I get to win this situation. Right. Um, and I've and I've started to like maybe it's the heads up background, but I've started to think of situations more in these terms, right? Like like if I if I do this, then I win when they when they do that, mm. um, or if they do this, then then I win when we do that. Like I, I think that's a helpful um, framework for me to think about, almost like tactics and counters, right? Like it's kind of sport like in that way. That's also like one of the more fun parts of of tournament poker for me is thing is kind of being in that more sport like environment. So I've I've started to draw the, that connection as well. I just want to check in that I'm not sucking up all the air here. Carlos, was there anything you wanted to? Um... Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in really quick and ask Kevin this, because a lot of what we're talking about here is finding adjustments to mistakes your opponents are making, mm -hmm. which I think kind of comes natural in a heads-up environment because mm -hmm. it's just you and that other player and you're seeing everything. Um, how do you... How do you work on doing that in tournaments where you're not playing against one player? Like one thing that I focus on a lot in my games that I don't hear as many better players talk about is getting that information from hands you're not in. Like you're kind mm -hmm. of forced to get the information that heads up tournament. But if you're playing live, especially with so much other stuff going on, if you like full seven do soften of the gun there might be some information given freely in this hand if you just pay attention to it. I know, I think a lot of people struggle with that. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I think it's a good point to talk about. I guess there's like two steps to that process, right? There's the information collection, which a lot of people are are lacking. And then there's like, what do I do with that information, which is perhaps like more technically complicated. 
So like when you're when you're generalizing, you know, if I'm if I'm playing at the World Series, like a nine-handed table or, or a ten-handed table, I can't really sometimes it'll just hit you in the face, right? Like someone, someone will show a hand that's ridiculous in the early levels and you just immediately know that they're a target um, and and you can game plan just for that one person and, and how to try and um, collect as much money from them as possible. But I, I think more broadly about those conceptual mistakes that I think the average player is making to come up with these like big generalizations about how I might want to approach a, a full table. So um one thing that comes up a lot when I'm when I'm working with students on on preflop ranges is like what to do with the mixed strategy stuff that that comes up in in tournaments a lot. If you're looking at tournament preflop charts, you'll you'll see a lot of spots where like I don't know, you're in the cutoff and you're facing an open raise from under the gun and you have like ace jack offsuit or king queen offsuit or um, I don't know, a seven suited or king ten suited or something. And it's like, yeah, you could you could three bet 30% of the time or you could flat, you know. Um, and I don't I don't really do that um <laughs> in game. I'm not I'm not much of like a randomizing in in World Series tournaments type of person. So I think that having a a general sense for like what performs best in this environment and why, kind of going back to what Andrew was talking about earlier with with like what would be what would be unintuitive for these players to play against or what would they struggle against in terms of like doing what the solver would do so yeah again i would just ask like why is the solver mixing those things like what what would go so wrong if we just always three bet what what would be the problem with always three betting right well the problem would be that under the gun players range is really strong they would four bet us a whole lot and we would never see flops um so we wouldn't realize our equity and our range would be too weak so now that we know that it's like okay well if they don't four bet that much then we're good we just three bet right <laughs> um and lo and behold i mean uh, uh, you know i don't know if you've played any world series tournaments lately but like they don't four bet a whole lot that's not really a common thing so all of a sudden we've got this like kind of sweeping general adjustment that we can make that i think again simplifies things and it also improves our our strategy against the whole field so that's one like little example of you know um by default like doing this type of play in a live tournament isn't going to get punished. Therefore, that's just part of my default approach now. Um, and I would apply that same thing to like check raising flops or, you know, folding rivers or whatever it is. Like if, if we can come up with those broad generalizations that are pretty accurate and just do it against everyone until proven that it's a bad idea, um, then we're picking up a whole lot of BB. Yeah, I really like that one because it gets to another question I was going to ask you. You come from a heads up background one. And also in the last couple of years, at least you've been playing outside of the U.S. against, I would say, on average, tougher competition heads up. So mm -hmm. to make that transition to now playing against Americans in <laughs> multi-way pots where like <laughs> none of your theory, <laughs> none of your theories yeah. gonna <laughs> apply here, uh, you can benefit from having a higher three bet frequency because that is going to reduce the number of multi-way pots you have to play also. So that mm -hmm. uh, removes one um, sticking point that you may face as a, a heads up player. Yeah. <laughs> I have growing familiarity with the environment of, of playing, you know, live in the U S and uh, yeah. And I, and I work with some students. I mean, I'm, I'm sure from the sound of it, both of you are are often speaking with um, with players who struggle with those same things. And again, I just like I, I actually do use solvers to help me come up with the answer to these situations, even though it's not like a it's not a appropriate situation to have charts for, right? Like I I don't have I don't know small blind charts facing six limpers, um, <laughs> but I but I do have like a. Like there's ways that you could use a program like Simple Preflop, for example, to run like a little test, run a little experiment that that could answer that that theoretical question. That's like, okay, well, how should I think about this spot? Like, how should I approach an overly passive game where there's you know going to be a five way pot or a six way pot? Like, can a solver at least shed a little insight on like what the comparative EV is of flatting the small blind versus squeezing the small blind? And running a couple of those experiments, I found that like most live players overestimate how much money they're making by by flatting and like jumping into a seven way pot. 
Because because I think there's just this like classical logic that says, oh, I can outplay them or like, oh, they're all really bad or, oh, I'll just try and flop a big hand and win a big pot. And it's like, well, yeah, that's great. But like, you've got seven, four suited in the small blind, like you're, ju- you're just losing money here. So it, it's, <laughs> uh, it's that kind of intersect of like, okay, I, um, what is the live environment presenting to me? Like, what are the real challenges that I'm facing? And then using software, using programs to to help me, like to help calculate quite a complicated question, which is like, what's the best play, you know, facing uh, an open, a three bet and three cold calls or whatever. <laughs> I think the, the multi-way pot thing uh, is a good example of the, where strategies start to become more intuitive. It's like once you're playing a six-way pot, like if, if I think the for a lot of people, the response is kind of like, well, if I don't have anything, I'm just gonna get out. And that's mm-hmm. pretty much just correct. Like it's it's usually fairly obvious. Um, I mean, I guess some people could like overvalue top pair or something, but uh, you mm-hmm. know, I think in general, people play better in multi-way pots than they do it. Well, that's a broad statement, but I think that you mean like closer to closer to the theoretical like possible. EV they could make in that spot. They're like not doing terrible. Yeah, I think like that that idea of, oh, I'm just going to complete and outplay these people later in a seven-way. Like there's just not that much room to outplay people in a seven-way pot. Like there's, because I mean, a lot of, or I guess a lot of outplaying them is just going to be check folding. Like there's not a lot of opportunities where outplaying yeah. them results in you winning the, the pot. I mean, I guess you're outplaying them in the sense that like you're not paying off with your top pair where reciprocally like they would have paid off with top pair in that same spot or something, but there's not the same opportunity. Like you're not, you're not going to bluff your way through seven people very often. No, definitely not. I mean, I have like I've again, I've I've been curious about spots like that, and I have looked at you know, let's say a solver output versus how most people approach it, and the like useful takeaway I find is like, oh yeah, most most people should play even tighter than they think they should in multi-way pots, and they should probably play more aggressive. Like those, would, I, if I was to summarize like my you know solver findings for multi-way pots, again, this is me taking like a, a scenario that's ridiculously complex and just like trying to dumb it down to as little info as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say most people would benefit from being more aggressive, but also like folding way more um, on all streets. And that would probably help. But but I agree with you. Like, I, I don't think there's massive mistakes being made there by the average player. I think that's also something where people don't, like because people play multi-way pots all the time before the flop they just don't think of them as as multi-way pots but a lot of those <laughs> same pre-flop heuristics yeah. of like if you're in early position you're more incentivized to like three better fold more so than call mm-hmm. like that kind of applies uh, i mean i've not done a lot of multi-way solver work but i mean that kind of applies multi-way also of like that the, mm-hmm. the aggression is more important when there are other players behind you who are, who are yet to act because then like you're denying equity to them you know in multi-way pots mm-hmm. fold equity is is largely not about just picking up the pot it's about pushing some people off of their equity and then getting a heads up against someone else where you have decent equity and you don't have to be a favorite against them because you're getting subsidized by those folds um they're just getting heads up when you have have decent equity and uh and i think people do get that concept pre-flop or more people get that concept pre-flop so then it's just like helping them understand you're applying that same principle in in a post-flop scenario and like this is not actually as far in as it, as it seems you're just not used to thinking of pre-flop as a multi-way pot mm-hmm. yeah i really like that i've i've used that comparison before and I th- again just like like creating a little framework to help understand the scenario better that that goes such a long way i think have you done any teaching like outside of um outside of poker have you taught anything uh yeah i guess funny enough i've i've been um for for a few years i've been a coach for various ultimate frisbee teams so that i guess what i i would say is the closest thing like i haven't i haven't taught in like the educational sense any anything um of note but coaching a sports team has has been like a fun uh side project and i i find i find myself you know um, having like little crossover moments every now and then between between the two things, uh, between poker and, and ultimate frisbee coaching. I, I know we're running low on time now, but I'd be very curious to hear about uh, if there's any of those crossovers you want to point to. Yeah, I, I I think it's more about like my approach to coaching than it is about let's say like a like a learning takeaway um, from from the sport. You know, like I so all of my all of my poker coaching experience let's say like in the early parts of my career were one-on-one conversational kind of things. 
And uh, in in having those one-on-one conversations, I think the average poker coach is just like doing their best to share knowledge, whatever it is that works for them. And, you know, hopefully the student picks it up. I think that's like a fairly typical um, methodology with if, if you didn't really put too much thought into your coaching, you'd just like talk about what you do. And then you'd, you'd say like, you should start doing this or maybe have you considered this? And, and then when I started coaching a Frisbee team, I, I think I pretty much went about it the same way. I just like wrote out my understanding of the sport and I designed practices that, um, that emphasize those important things. And then like little by little, I found, oh, this like doesn't really help that, like that person's not being helped by this. I'm, I guess I'm like more forced to see the feedback in real time because I'm like there at their games. I'm there at their next practice. I'm there at everything. So I love, I'm like watching these players progress or not progress. Uh, which is a little different from the typical poker coaching interaction. And that was like super helpful for for helping me realize what is working and what's not working. And like slowly but surely, I shifted away from so much talking and towards a lot more just like action, towards a lot more like, let's get you practicing this, like let's get you on the field doing this or like or showing things, right? Like different teaching methods. Um, that's That's been a big shift in the way that I approach uh, teaching. Carlos is our resident teaching expert here, but that doesn't sound so different from uh, what an accomplished classroom teacher might be doing. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. It's, a lot of it is just diagnosing issues and just uh, providing ways to solve those issues. I think that applies through various different um, types of coaching or teaching. Yeah, and and it came up as well, like er- I think it was early 2020 or so i i convinced run at once um to let us do like a couple projects these like group seminar formats or, or small group coaching formats and uh, some of the feedback i got early on was from like a um someone in a teaching program a like a, a master a master's teaching program and his advice was so good it was literally just like it was always like stripping away information doing more like interaction with students doing more diagnosing like you said um, of what needs to be done. And, and it's just so much less about hearing yourself talk as a coach or as a teacher, which was really, yeah, I think it's just made like significant upgrades to how effective I can be for, for my students. Yeah. It needs to be a two-way street. I think that's something that a lot of people forget. Mm -hmm. Um, speaking of, um, communication coming back from the students, I'm curious about something quick here. Um, I watched one of your videos of coaching and I saw the back of your Jersey said, uh, I'm curious if they call you coach K-Rab or or (laughs) coach Crab, because it it reads like crab on the back of the Jersey. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And important thing to clarify too, uh, (laughs) the, um, usually I get coach Crab. Even though I think I think when I came, I like it's just it obviously first initial last name, but um, I think when I when I came up with that, I like thought it was Krab, and I thought that was obvious to everyone. And I, <laughs> like it was my screen name on Stars too, Krab Forty Two, and then like I started meeting people in person, and they would just call me Crab, and it's like, oh, you didn't you didn't get it? Oh, okay. <laughs> that's cool. We'll we'll just go with Crab. That's fine. Yeah, another question I have. Were you guys both at the University of Chicago at the same time? No, we weren't even as close as I thought. Um, I, I graduated in 04, and Kevin, you started in 08? Uh, started in, I guess it'd be 07, class class of 2011. Although I guess I was I was done a little earlier than that, but yeah. Um, yeah, that was a cool thing to find out before we, before we got into this. Um, I did actually little... play ultimate Frisbee there one, um, one season. Oh, did you? Just, I mean, uh, intramural. I was, yeah, I played a little bit there as well. I think I went to the varsity tryouts and I was so, fr- like, I barely knew the sport at that point. I was more of a tennis person before that. And when I, when I got out there, the first thing they were doing was like, was this layout drill, which was basically just like 20 guys in a circle, maybe 15 yards across. And they would just like toss a ball or a disc or something in the center. And everyone one at a time had to dive towards the center. And I was just like, no, this isn't for me. And I just left (laughs) and stuck to intramural. What would you point to as influences outside of poker, books, movie, TV shows, stuff like that, that you'd want to recommend to people? influences outside of poker um i mean when i'm not when i'm not involved in poker i try to to stay as far away from it as possible (laughs) yeah i I think that um 
I mean, like what I find myself reading or, or listening to a lot is sort of tangentially involved. That's more just like me reminding myself to take rest and do something creative that I enjoy, which is normally cooking. Um, a lot of people found my Instagram over the last couple of years interesting because I, I didn't used to post any poker content there. I just did nothing but cook and, and take photos of it. So I do think that, you know, having a totally unrelated creative thing is nice, but I, I, I've actually found it quite beneficial to my thought process in poker or like my my interest in the game by reading somewhat related but not so related stuff. So, you know, in the in the realm of like pop science, you know, something about decision making, something about psychology, like I find myself really enjoying all that stuff because I can just so easily see the the connection to poker. But yeah, something something I was kind of obsessed with as I was getting more serious about my coaching and my coaching process was was reading about intuition. There was a book I think by Gary Klein called The Power of Intuition or the or the hidden, I don't know, it probably had some more salesy name to it. Hmm. Um, but it just like, yeah, reading, reading about like uh, more sport-like behavior, sports psychology type stuff and, and like uh, reading stories about how intuition works was really interesting to me because I was, I was obsessed with this idea that like maybe I could find a way to teach more intuitive expert things, right? And then I went down this whole long rabbit hole and kind of came away with the conclusion like, never mind, I'm not, not going to try and do that. <laughs> um, it's, it's way harder than I thought. Uh, just getting experience is the answer. But all, all of that type of stuff uh, is, is what interests me the most when I'm not, you know, just actively studying. Okay, so the game plan available now on Run It Once um, for people interested in uh, your your coaching services. Where do they go for that? Yeah, I've got a, a website um, dedicated to my private coaching. It's just my full name dot com. So kevinrabichow.com. and I, I usually share stuff on Twitter or on Instagram. Uh, my handles there are krabichow. I will say Rabichow is spelled, I, I would say how it sounds, but you might want to spell that out for people just in case. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. For, so first initial K for the for the Twitter handles and all that. Last name Rabichow, R-A-B-I-C-H-O-W. Awesome. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks, guys. It was fun. Take care. I know you